Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 975. We have a pair of great guest interviews for you this week. First up, David Lorello welcomes Julia Morales, reporter for AT&T Sportsnet Southwest and the Houston Astros. Julia has been covering the Astros for a decade now, and she shares what it was like to cover the club through the lean years as well as a championship run. We hear stories about working with Jose Altuve, Zach Greinke, AJ Hinch, and Dusty Baker, as well as how her job changed to go along with the rise of analytics. It was a very delicate situation for the broadcast team, because I think if we had gone too hard on the numbers and, and thrown up these definitions where it took guys or, you know, took a, a fan forever to read who's sitting in a bar, right, having a beer and trying to trying to figure out what weighted runs created plus is, right? Like if you put up the definition there, the fans in the bar are like, huh? And, and so you got to think about that. So we had to we had to really talk it out and decide how much we wanted to put up. And do we want to start with FIP? Do we want to throw an XFIP too? Is that too much to do both? And so it was a, a lot of trial and error, I think, in the beginning. After that, Dan Zimborski and Ben Clemens welcome back Dr. Meredith Wills, who came by last year on episode 909. Dr. Wills has continued her research on the weird baseballs, and it seems there is even more monkey business going on in 2022. We hear about things like how the humidors specifically changed the ball, how they could be having an unintended leftover food effect, and how it could be causing dents in the balls. Dan and Ben also asked Meredith what she would do if she were in charge, and she has plenty to vent about. Hitters are just as annoyed, and frankly, over the same kinds of things. I would never have thought it possible that MLB could come up with a baseball that everybody hated. Pitchers hate it. Batters hate it. Apparently, throwing errors are up. Even fielders are having a problem with the baseball. I thought 2019 was like the worst baseball they could have come up with. Somehow, they've done something worse. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. It is the best way to both browse a site and to support the site, helping us to do everything we do, including this podcast. Thank you. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorelock. My guest is Julia Morales. Julia, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. Yes, I haven't been on a podcast in a while, so hopefully I don't mess this up for you. Need to warm up. No, I'll, the messing things <laughs> up, Julia, is uh, that's that's my job. Okay. You know, and, and speaking of, of messed up, with the introduction, I guess I should have included Houston Astros reporter. Maybe I also should have said highly popular Houston Astros reporter. Julia, oh, you you have uh, over 140,000 Twitter followers, which is far more than, you know, former Fangrass Audio guest Robert Ford, or even more than, <laughs> what, Steve Sparks, Todd Callis, or Jeff Blum. That That's pretty popular. <laughs> I love that you included all my broadcaster friends, because we do talk about this a lot. And we, we try to have these Twitter Tuesdays on our broadcast. And, uh, you know, they're just... Todd Callis and Jeff Blum are great. They're they're great partners, and they're obviously really good friends of mine too. We were very close, but they give me a hard time every Tuesday. They're like, "You can tweet at us, but you know it's not going to go anywhere." Make sure you tweet at Julia and all her followers. That's been nuts. I mean, I've been on Twitter a long time. You know how social media has gone. Um, when I started in this business way before I 
got the job with the Astros, but it was timing, David, and I know we'll get into this, but timing is everything. And I just happened to jump on, uh, you know, with the Astros at the right time where everything was starting to trend in the right direction. And bam, here we are. It's a fun following. It's a great fan base. I can't say enough great things about the people in, you know, in Texas. I grew up there. I'm so Texan. It hurts. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's a lot of fun. So you've been covering the Astros, I believe it's 10 years now. This is 10. In three words or less, what has that experience been like? Oh my gosh, three? Why would you do that to a broadcaster? You know, challenging in the beginning. So that would be my first word. How do I say just kind of a dream come true? And this was a dream that that I didn't even realize I had when I got into the business. So it's just, it's exhilarating. I mean, and then the success, I don't know. Pick words from that, David. The success the Astros have had that I've been able to witness the last few years. uh, All of that put together for an incredible decade of Astros baseball for me and being a, a field reporter, you know, now I, you know, I, I started out as, as a sideline reporter, the typical sideline job of, of doing reports and on injuries and, and just kind of big news of the day. And I've, I've really become one of the broadcasters here in the last five to, to six or seven years. And that I give a lot of credit to the guys that I work with, of course, the play-by-play and, and the analysts I've just mentioned, TK and Blummer. Um, bringing me in, kind of bringing me into the conversation. So it's not so much, uh, hey, let's go down to our reporter. It's just like, Julia, what do you got? And so, yeah, I just, it's been a wild ride. I've seen a lot, really good times, and then really hard, hard times here recently and back to, back to pretty good times. So yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, we can probably figure out a word count there, Julia, but that was a, <laughs> a lot more than, than three, three words. That's okay, though. You're, uh, I think it was Robert Ford who warned me that Julia loves to talk. So Yes, good, good. Yeah. Good. I mean, is that a bad thing? I don't know. It's probably a bad thing, but... No, hey, you're a broadcaster, Julia. You're, <laughs> you're supposed to talk. Yeah. No, let's, let's jump to this. You made light of how the Astros were terrible when you first got there. It was, what, 111 losses, I think. Yeah. They've obviously had multiple 100-plus win seasons. You know, they've won a World Series since that time. With the caveat that your job description has changed a little bit over the years, how different is your job in, you know, those vastly different scenarios? Oh, that's an excellent question. Yeah, so you're right. My first year was 2013, and they had already had a couple of 100 lost seasons. You know, people weren't weren't showing up to the ballpark anymore. So I arrived in 2013. There was this brand new network that arrived. It was called CSN Houston. Everyone very excited about it. They kicked off during the rocket season. And it was beautiful, uh, had a lot of talent that they hired in from all over the country and just people everywhere, right? And they were putting on some incredible broadcast. And then we get started with the Astros and we're like, we have this gorgeous studio downtown Houston and we are ready to go. And our team is the 2013 Astros. <laughs> we're like, who are these guys? You know, and I, I think that was just so perfect of timing for me to, to roll in. We have all this great studio, everything to support us to be a great broadcast, but the team wasn't very good. So my job in the beginning was kind of like, hey, uh, look over here, look over here, like, look what we got over here. Uh, Look at this ballpark, look at this ballpark food. You know, it became this whole kind of show where we 
didn't really want to talk about what was going on because this was year three of 100, 100 losses for this group. You know, fans knew exactly what they were getting when they turned on the TV every night. It was like, how are they how are they going to fault tonight or who, you know, who's going to have the error tonight that ends up in a loss? It was, it was a tough time for fans to really buy in. And it was also a big switch as far as the team goes, uh, you know, with the switch to the American league fans were mad about not being in the national league anymore. This is a team that had been there forever. And, and these baseball fans knew nothing else. And then you're telling, you're telling us we got to like a DH um, just a really interesting time in Astros baseball. And so it really was, I was trying to, I was trying to bring fans in and find ways to make it interesting every night. It was really tough because these players were kind of just in and out. And the only constant was really this guy named Jose Altuve. Other than that, it was just, you know, <laughs> every day somebody was being optioned. So my job in the beginning was like, how do I tell the, you know, how do I tell the good in this team? So it was very, you know, this guy had his first home run in the majors or, you know, that those are the things we would focus on. So you fast forward to all these years later and oh my gosh, like the difference in my job is, is so great. You know, we have a good team. Our fans are smart. They have grown with us with the analytics. They have, um, you know, they've gotten spoiled because they know how a game should be managed. There was just some really good teams over the last decade that that put us in kind of a different situation with the broadcast. So our broadcast, we we bring elements now where we're using a lot of the Statcast, we're using a lot of the analytics that our front office likes to use. I'm telling baseball stories. Like I, to get a ballpark food item story in is really hard to do now. There's just not enough time. Our team is too good. Our lineup's too good. There's too many great stories. Our pitching's so good. You know, it's like we could go on and on and on and our fans love it. They're just eating it up. So, and I love it too. It's just, it's amazing how my job has changed because now the conversations aren't about, um, so what did you do at your first time in Detroit? And did you go see where old Tiger Stadium was? You know, it's like no longer about that. It's about, you know, you talking to Blake Taylor. I saw you doing an interview with him and it's like, yeah, I'm sitting down with relievers now. And we're breaking down why this pitch looks like this pitch and, and you know, how, how they use whatever versus this, this hitter versus this. I mean, you know, those are the conversations we have now um, versus what my job was back then. Uh, we've come a long way, David. We've come a long way. No, and asking questions to people, you know, like Blake Taylor about pitching, it, you know, it's fun. It's, you know, it's what I do. And so I can see why you appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And and with questions like that in mind, just how much did the growth of analytics, you know, change, you know, your job? Huge. Yeah. So in 13, 14, you know, it was obviously there and, but it was the team, you know, it was the Tampas and and then Jeff Luno comes in and he brings in this group with him and, and they promise change, but they, they tell us to give it a second. Right. And then I'll, you know, I think I was telling you, David, like I, I'll never forget that the day we rolled into Minute Maid Park and all of a sudden OPS was by everybody's name, you know, rather than batting average. And the thing about that was, is that the OPSs weren't very good. Now Tuve was actually getting better. That's the year he won the batting title, but this was still a roster that was not the roster we were going to see. Um, you know, George Springer would, of course, arrive on the scene, but that was not the George Springer that you see now. This guy was striking out a lot, not getting on base. Um, and so I remember people being like, what does OPS stand for? What is, and, and being upset about that, right? It was just one more thing that the fans were upset at at the time. And then little by little, the team got better and started winning. And I think fans were curious, right? And, you know, and they we would just kind of lightly put it onto the broadcast. I think I was telling you that, you know, it was, it was a very delicate situation for the broadcast team. Cause I think if we had gone too hard on the numbers and, and thrown up these definitions where it took guys or, you know, took a, a fan forever to read who's sitting in a bar, right. Having a beer and trying to, 
trying to figure out what weighted runs created plus is, right? Like if you put up the definition there, the fans in the bar are like, huh? And, and so you got to think about that. So we had to we had to really talk it out and decide how much we wanted to put up. And do we want to start with FIP? Do we want to throw an XFIP too? Is that too much to do both? And so it was a, a lot of trial and error, I think, in the beginning. And then 16, 17, this team was really good and winning. So of course, everyone's embracing whatever it is about their team. And I think that that fans just became a more welcoming audience of, of any kind of information. If it if it meant their favorite player was doing well, then I want to hear more about it. Exit Velocity all of a sudden was like really cool. And so, yeah, that's changed tremendously in the last 10 years. And and I know it was there. We know it was there behind the scenes at 10 years ago, but I love that it's it's now a part of what we do every single day. It's part of the prep that I do every single day and, the, and when I'm looking at guys and, and what they're what they're doing and and comparing different players. It's just going to go forward, right? And I know this is great for you guys and what you do, but but more people interested. And then the players, of course, got interested. I remember Carlos Correa would talk about his stats on fan graphs and, and why he liked war versus this. And, and, you know, it's all of that. Once they start saying it too, then fans are like, aha, okay, Carlos likes it. Why should I? Um, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely come a long way, but I think that's exciting, right? Aren't you excited, David? You should be. I am very excited, and your, <laughs> and your mention of people sitting in a bar raising their hands at, to ask what uh, WRC Plus is. This is Fangrass Audio, so those hands are actually staying down because they already know the stats. Right, really. yeah, That's, for sure, yeah. Yeah, you've mentioned uh, Jose a couple of times. You have got to have one or several good Jose Altuve stories you can share. Yeah, Jose Altuve is someone I've known since 2013, actually since 2012. And, and of course, we I knew who he was. I was actually covering local sports in Austin before I got the Astros job. So I was definitely paying attention to both teams in Texas as far as the Rangers and the Astros go. So I was very much aware of what the Astros were doing before I arrived there. But to get to meet Jose Altuve at the time, he was actually 10 pounds heavier. You know, he looked a lot different. When I look back at pictures, he's got this baby face. You know, I think about the guy that, that was there that time who was just kind of trying to survive in a team that wasn't very good and and he was good right he would get his hits but when you have no support around you um you know it's, you're, you look like a completely different player and so the transformation i think my first story is the the one coming into 2014 and i mentioned that he was a little bit heavier only because in 2014 he showed up and he was ripped and looked like a different he was chiseled like his jawline all of a sudden was showing we were like what is going on with you and and he really wanted to he wanted to steal more bags like he was like i want to be faster you know like i, I want to add that into my game really all of a sudden crack down on his diet and all he did was go out and win a batting title that year so just a huge jump from that year to the next year um and then and then the team started kind of building around him so just an incredible person and i can't say that enough about a guy who gets booed all day every day in every ballpark this guy is so genuine people that that know him and are around him immediately fall in love with him i've watched i've watched you know players on the other team like can't wait to get around him and give him a hug the big poppies the miguel cabreras um they have so much respect for this guy because he's so genuine all he does is smile such a good guy. So one of my favorite stories early on is when he was, so him and Miggy, of course, are from the same area in Venezuela and, and they're really good friends, but he's calling Miggy. He's like, I need your help. I need your advice. I need some tips. And um, Miggy's like, what is going on, man? What are, what are you hitting right now? And so Miggy looks up his numbers. He's like, why is Altuve all over me? About He can't be that, he can't be that bad, right? He looks up his average. He's hitting like 314. 
And he's like, what do you mean you're struggling, dude? Like, this is not struggling. You're hitting over 300. And he hit 341 that year, you know? So, I mean, his expectations for himself were so high. And and he was he was just dying for any information he could get. And now he's that kind of that silent leader in the clubhouse, too. You know, fast forwarding some years. We've had some, some voices come through the clubhouse for the Astros, um, whether it's like a Carlos Gomez who had the big personality or, you know, it's like we've seen some veterans come through. Um, Carlos Correa obviously grew into one. Brian McCann showed up and did what he did. And then you had the the Justin Verlander show up, the Garrett Coles all of a sudden. They had a, when they spoke, people listened. But in the behind the scenes, there's always been Altuve who who just kind of keeps motoring along and keeps hitting. So he's he's all, obviously the guy that that shows the good example, right? And, and everyone leads by example and everyone follows his lead. You know, watching him go into that leadoff spot was was really fascinating and just kind of how he handled that. I love watching Altuve hit in the leadoff spot. I love that he swings at the first pitch. You know what I mean? I, and, and it's and I've watched George Springer do it for years and years and years, but I think it's so funny to to watch him go up there and not not want to take a freaking pitch. Don't change that, right? Like don't change the things that make him so great. But he's 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 an awesome guy and he does so much for for the community. I could go on and on about the the person that he is just because I've gotten to know him. He's had two kids since. He's a he's a girl dad to the bone and wants five girls. He told me he's only got two so far and, and would have a, a bunch of girls if he possibly could. And he loves to have those girls around him. But I, you know, I now in this kind of state that he's in where he gets booed to death every time he comes up to the plate and to see him still kind of just, I don't know what he went through, honestly. You know, obviously none of us know what he went through when times got really dark in 2020 um, before this team kind of got playing again. But to see him have these incredible at-bats after being booed day after day after day on the road while well, we've had it a long road trips David to start this year and so he's he's gotten it a lot and to deliver right and just and like nothing nothing's happening I don't know how you do that but that is some kind of strong that's going on within himself yeah so I could go on and on you 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 definitely asked about the right guy I've I've just I've really enjoyed being around him and I can't wait to see where his career goes right he's I think he's one hit away from 1800 like he's just trucking along and I would love to see him get 3k one day. We'd love him in Houston for sure. You mentioned uh, strong personalities, Julia. What was it like to interact with Zach Greinke on a regular basis? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question too. He, so I will never forget the day he was uh, traded over. We were in Cleveland and they shut the, <laughs> they shut the clubhouse. You know, they were, they were open and they were like, actually, no, let's, you know, it's trade deadline. I think we're, you know, we're East Coast time. So it's four o'clock and they're like, actually media, hang on for a second. We're like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? You know, we're all excited. The media is like, yes, we're going to have something to cover. Um, and then the, the clubhouse erupts. It absolutely erupts. And the other part of the story is that there's this kid named Brian Abreu, who's in the big leagues now, obviously, and a big part of what the Astros do now. But he was making, he was getting called to the show. Like this was his first day in the big leagues and had been called up and he's rolling up on a cart like the best day of his life, right? Like he's like, I'm joining the, the 2019 Houston Astros. And and they're like, oh, you can't come in. We're like, no, 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 I'm a player or whatever. So they let him in. And as they let him in, they kind of open up the doors. And at that moment, the clubhouse absolutely erupted, losing their minds. And we're like, who did they just get? Who did they just get? Um, and so we get to come in seconds later and we find out it's Granky. I mean, people are just like, Granky, Granky, Granky. Like everyone's so excited. 
and Garrett Cole was probably the most excited. He's like jumping around. Like, I can't believe we got this guy, which I feel, you know, like I, I tell the Abreu part of that story because can you imagine like it being your first day, like you're joining the team and then like you find out that they've just traded for Zach Grinky, which is probably your roster spot. You know, <laughs> like you want to be so excited, but everyone's excited about someone else. And it, things worked out for Abreu. He's obviously here, but it was just kind of how baseball goes, right? That's such a baseball story. And then people, once he got into the clubhouse, he was everything that everyone explained to me, you know, reporters immediately reaching out being like, okay, it's going to be tough. The way you ask questions, um, the way you interact. Um, what, what I did find fascinating about him was just his family's so great. His wife is great. We, we connected pretty early on, but to have a conversation with that whole family and like him not really want to be a part of it, you just kind of have to get used to. Right. And, and then he, he did, he was tough. He was tough to ask questions to like everyone else. And you didn't know where to go. I remember in the, the playoffs that, that 2019 playoffs, they played the temporary Rays in the, uh, in the DS. And he had some really awkward moments with us. And, and then we all just kind of move on. You just, you just ha can't take it personally and you can't dwell on it too long, but man, he would make it awkward on us. But he pitched his, you know, what off for the Astros while he was there. Uh, some pretty incredible moments, almost had a no hitter in Seattle one night just to, for what he's doing at his age. And I, I just can't believe like what 2019 was for the Astros and, and how good that team was and how staff, how that staff was um, to have some future hall of famers on that, on that staff together. And just kind of the greatness that we witnessed all on one club. I'll never take for granted. That was one of the coolest things ever, but um, yeah, he's a good one. I, I appreciated his time in, in Houston, man. He had some ups and downs too, especially at the end. I know they were happy to go to Kansas city, uh, but that I will always just cherish the fact that I was able to cover him. Right. And, and kind of witness the, the Zach Greinke that that will be a legend forever, I guess. <laughs> so, so Zach Greinke obviously did not go out of his way to, you know, give great quotes to reporters. So right. conversely, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, Julia, Ooh. I don't think there's a wrong answer to this question. Okay. More quotable manager, AJ Hinch or Dusty Baker? Oh my gosh. That's really tough. That's so tough. And those are two completely different quotes, David. Those are I, you know, I, wow. Again, this is where it's hard to explain my job and it's hard to explain my time with the Astros because of the people, right? Like the, the personalities I've been able to get really close to. I was really tight with AJ Hinge. I did a really cool segment every Friday with him where we would go to places on the road. I mean, that dude is made for TV. He's absolutely made when, whenever he's done, which I, you know, I don't think it'll be for a while. He's so good at being on the field and maybe he ends up in a front office, but if he ever wants a job in TV, he's got it. He just has it. And he, he's always had it. He was that typical, you know, the high school football star who was getting interviewed on the field, turned into the Stanford kid who was, who was the captain of the, the team. I mean, he's always had it. So that guy nails everything. And, and I appreciate him for the times that were really hard. You know, I think about the 2019 World Series that was supposed to be the coolest and most fun thing for any of us to, to be a part of. And there was some really hard and dark things going on around the club at the time. You know, there was the, the incident in the clubhouse with the woman and, and all of that was going on. And all AJ did was nail some of these quotes and he apologized. And he was kind of the only one that apologized at the time too. And just hit, it resonated, right? And that's a gift. And, but it's all very, it's just well thought out. 
so that's AJ. I was talking about my Friday segments with him. I mean, he, it's why we did those segments because he was so good at TV and he could carry a show. We would go, we went to, we did tours of things. We went in the arch in St. Louis. We went in the catwalks at the Tropicana field. Some really, really cool segments with, to do with a manager, right? These guys don't have a lot of time, but we worked really hard to kind of go around his schedule and, and come up with some cool stuff. So I'll forever be grateful for my time with him. I think he made me better at TV and just how we went back and forth. And then there's Dusty. So Dusty follows him up and, and oh my gosh, what a jovial dude, like the coolest cat, right? And everyone said that about him. And I had so many people reach out and were like, you're gonna love your time with Dusty. But the quotes, you're right. Every day, I'm just like, like you should have Hallmark cards just available for baseball people, right? Like the things that he says, I'm trying to think of what I've, I've written some of them down somewhere, just like the little one liners he can pull off. I mean, it's just every single day. And I'm like, where do you come up with it? And he's like, I don't know. It just comes to me. And, and that's a gift too. And, you know, he'll take a really hard situation and kind of flip it around and, and make us all kind of giggle with whatever he has to say, just to, to lighten the mood or, or loosen things up. And I think that's his gift too in the clubhouse and, and can really just help a, a guy with a fun conversation or get their mind off of something and make him feel, make him feel good. He makes everybody feel good. And so I've, I've enjoyed him too. I don't, I can't, I could pick, I can't pick between those two on just the great quote because that's all they do is provide, is provide great quotes. Oh, it's great. No, you do not have to pick Julia, but I do have a question for you because you have a quote unquote gift, you know, for Gab as well. Have you done any in-game broadcast work, you know, like analyst work or play-by-play? Yeah, we've we've kind of done the carousel where I'll jump in the booth. So the cool thing about our broadcast is the three of us are just like, work so whatever. I mean, in, in the best way, like we're We've got Todd Callis, who people around the game know this guy. First of all, he's the son of a Hall of Fame voice, you know, and a broadcaster. But he is he was the Tampa Bay sideline for a long time. So if anyone's going to appreciate my job, it's him. Like, he totally gets it. So he's so good at the way he brings me into a conversation or the way he kind of sets me up for things. And then Jeff Blum is the Californian, just just a really sweet guy with four daughters that were all he's triplets and another girl and they're all born within a year of each other like his whole backstory is really cool and just an all-around good dude and he can talk and and podcast with the best of them if he wants so we could pretty much all do each other's job right like we so that's what we do and our producer our producer kind of likes doing that like i'll open the show a lot and, and kind of set things off and you would never see that on some traditional broadcast if we go back 20 years you know i, I mean that guys are probably like oh my gosh why is she opening the show you know like things like that i think like we've we've come we've come so far when it comes to broadcasting and just kind of like rules out the window right let's try new things um i love being in the booth you know it, it's what started it was kind of some rain delays or or rainy games or really, really hot games where they just kind of let me come up and, and throw on another headset. So I'm more a part of breaking down what happens during during at bats and situations. And then I can tell stories in a little bit, a, you know, a little different way. The sideline reporter job, so so much of it, you know, in, in other sports, baseball is obviously different, but if, if fans turn on any other game, I mean, you've got 15 seconds to get your information in. So you've got to choose your words wisely. Um, can't really get into a story. And that's the beautiful part of baseball, I think. And and so, and that's what we do. I mean, it's like what you do, right? Like you, this is why you have podcasts. Like these guys can't tell their stories in 10 seconds and 15 seconds. And for you to understand who they are and why they, 
why they develop that pitch and and why they hit the way that they do. Um, and so I love that about this game. But yeah, I've, I've done a little bit. I've called a few innings before we've done where I've just kind of called the three innings of this game and and switched around. So I I also applaud some women who are killing it right now in calling games. You know, my good friend Jenny Kavnar is doing a great job. But Melanie Newman's doing a great job, too, and jumping on these apps. There's just all these opportunities that are popping up where people are doing a really great job. They're prepared. They know their stuff. And that that was, you know, some of the worry coming in, I think, when you give people these opportunities and, and they're just killing it. And I'm so proud. And I, it's not my dream. I can be completely honest with you, David. It's not my dream to be a play-by-play person right now. I, I love what I'm doing. I kind of love the idea of hosting things and hosting shows. You know, I enjoy doing some Rockets pre and post. Um, not baseball, but I do enjoy kind of that platform and sitting on a desk with an analyst and breaking down games after, uh, you know, after it's done. And um, and so I enjoy doing that, too. So I've just tried to be versatile. Right. Isn't that the name of the game? If I've learned anything from the Astros and guys like Marwin Gonzalez and Aled Mestias and Ben Zerberist and all these people, it's to be versatile. <laughs> So you're a utility player, Julia. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we're starting to run low on time, but I, I do want to hit you with a couple of more things. Okay. You're talking about people who are good at podcasting and naturals in the booth. Colin McHugh has been a guest on this podcast, oh, yeah. and he is a natural. He could yeah. jump in and do a game analyst you know, job tomorrow and be Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Oh, I hope, he comes to te- I hope he comes to Texas and joins our pregame shows whenever he's done playing. He's the best. No, he is. Who else jumps to mind that you have covered as a player who you think could fold into one of those jobs someday? Yeah, you know, I think Jason Kasher would be good at it on this particular club. Garrett Cole is just a fascinating, fascinating person. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think he would be great on, you know, maybe it's just a guest on a podcast. That dude doesn't have enough time. He has too many hobbies and things that he loves, but he is smart. He is so smart. And he thinks of this game in a whole different way, right? He was always my favorite. Uh, People that were just fun to talk to for me over the years. Evan Gaddis was so great. And he still watches every game. I know uh, Astros fans out there will always love him. Let me think of who else. Colin McHugh would would have been a a top one for me. Charlie Morton, if you can give that guy kind of a longer platform, like a podcast like this, he would kill it. He's not so good at the short answers. (laughs) He would not be a good sideline reporter, but my gosh, he... Once you get him going, he can tell a really good story. I we, we had several awkward interviews to start because I didn't quite know his rhythm. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Like he'll he'll start an answer and then he'll just get really quiet like he's thinking. And then this whole this whole lovely answer follows it. But if you if you jump the gun, you know, like you'll miss it. You gotta just kind of let it breathe with him. He would be he would be great at it too. And of course, Dusty, gosh, Dusty would kill it. (laughs) Dusty on TV. That guy needs his own show. No, that would be crazy. I think Dusty actually needs his own, uh, you know, philosophy-based sitcom if such a genre exists. Yes. No, Charlie is super thoughtful, but uh, somebody who is coming to mind with you mentioning you have to be careful in interviews with his pausing is uh, Buddy Black. Oh, yeah. Is a lot like that. Buddy mm-hmm. will, he, he will think between an answer. Yeah. And he's very, very thoughtful. Yes. You know, Jeremy Pena is obviously a talented young shortstop. You know, he's also a native New Englander. You know, you are in Boston with the team now. I believe that you went into the Green Monster with, uh, with Jeremy yesterday. You know, I what did. Is it, what, what is an experience like that like? It, you know, it, 
it kind of restores my faith in everything sometimes, you know, this, this job gets hard, the season gets hard. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes you just kind of need to look at it through different eyes and you realize just how cool, how cool all of this is. And it usually happens when a rookie shows up. So Jeremy Pena has had just a great start to his career, obviously, and we're all very excited for him, but you're right. He's from Providence and everybody's in Providence for him. And his girlfriend just graduated from, I think it's University of New Haven. So they're all here and they've been so busy and it's hard for them to get to these games. We've been on the road. So this is like the first time he's had a lot of people here and he has a ton of people or at Fenway Park with with all their shirts and everything. But right, yeah, before the before the start of the series, he wanted to go inside the Green Monster and do it as a player. So if you remember during the postseason 2021, he was with the club. So the Astros were here in the ALCS and he was part of the taxi squad. So he would go out early, take BP, which was a great experience for him. He's soaking it all in, right? On just what everything is like. But he refused to go in inside that monster until he was a player on the major league uh, on the major league roster. So that was a cool moment for him. I love doing it. I mean, they light up in such a way. These guys are so cool, right? Like <laughs> they they can they can put together an incredible at bat in the highest, you know, most intense situations. And then he gets in there and he's kind of giddy and he's looking for a place to sign. It's amazing. It's amazing to to see that. And I, you know, thinking back 10 years, it's like I was in there for Jose Altuve's first trip to the Green Monster. Carlos Correa showed up in 2015 and we followed him in there just like we did for Jeremy Pena. Um, one of the cooler parts of my job, I try to, to you know, that's part of my my job, right? It's telling their story. And so I, I want to continue to do that and, and making it special for these guys. And, and that way they have the memory to last forever too. This video, the pictures, you name it. Definitely one of the perks of my job. Yeah, I was in the visiting clubhouse at Fenway yesterday when uh, Jeremy did his media scrum. And um, if I heard him correctly, he said that he signed his name under Babe Ruth. <laughs> and then he paused for a minute and said, I don't think it was Babe Ruth's signature, but that's where I signed. I thought that was that was funny. Oh, I know. It's so great. Dream come true for him. Yeah. So last question, actually, now, Julia, have you signed your name in the Green Monster? I have. I did it years ago. And once I found out that other people were doing it, you know, my first couple of years, I'm just I'm just following the guys and doing my story and getting my interviews. And then I started to see other people doing it. And I think I, you know, I think the hot, what is it? They had a hockey game at Fenway Park. You know, they probably still do. But here's a guy. I remember seeing the broadcasters go in and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't know that I could take my own marker in there. And so I did it. I went in with another rookie. It might've been Corbin Martin or somebody that had just gotten called up and I went in there and signed and Cool moment for me too. You know, this place I've been a I've been to a lot with all the playoff series that the Astros and Red Sox have had, and, and then of course the regular season games, and never never loses its luster. And it's like that with all the ballparks, though. It's just a, this is definitely a special one. So your name is in there somewhere near Babe. somewhere somewhere so. near Babe Ruth as well. I'm su- I'm surprised <laughs> yeah, Jeremy exactly. didn't search out your name and make sure to, right? to sign it there. Oh, too bad. <laughs> hey, Julia, we are well over time here. It's been great to have you as a guest. And, you know, I will see you at Fenway Park later this afternoon. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Welcome, Fan Graffiteers. I'm Dan Zaborski, and I'm joined by Ben Clemens for Untitled Dan and Ben Baseball-related podcast segment. We're also joined today by a returning guest, astrophysicist Dr. Meredith Wills, noted dissector slash vivisectioneer of baseballs, and one of the few <laughs> observers of baseball who could build a doomsday laser that could threaten the United Nations. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Wills. 
Happy to be here. I'd actually prefer rather than building the doomsday laser just to warn people of the inevitable destruction of civilization by solar storms and have that ignored. But since that didn't work, now I'm looking at baseballs. You could do both. Have you thought of that? Well, I did. At one point, I just decided it was more fun to do baseball. Ben, how would we threaten if the two of us had to threaten the UN? Do we have anything of similar scale? Just endless baseball minutia that would drag them down past the ability to do anything useful. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Speak, speaking of baseballs dragging things down, we still have offensive problems in baseball and baseball controversies. It's surprising that this is still a thing in 2022. Recently, Philadelphia Phillies hitting coach Kevin Long talked to Jason Stark of The Athletic about observing inconsistencies of baseballs when he was in L.A., stating that he wasn't, in fact, a scientist. See, I'm not one. I'm the kid that Miss Wehrmeyer yelled at in seventh grade homeroom because my friend Phil and I got a kick out of burning the magnesium ribbon during morning announcements and we were split up for the rest of the year. But Dr. Wills, you are. Can you run us through some of your initial impressions of the baseball this year? Wow. I like you talking about, you know, the offensive numbers. And every time I hear that, I sort of think, are we allowed to say that the offensive numbers are in <laughs> fact offensive? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, man, every year I think this is somehow going to at least stabilize. And every year it seems to get weirder and unfortunately lately worse. So, yeah, offense is really down. And not only is it really down, but it's down in a way that I don't understand. I mean, I have ideas, but this one is not anything I would have expected to this extent. And. A lot of it feels kind of like an unforced error. First, I should say I have, you know, I'm, as we're talking, I am unlacing a baseball because that's what I do. And I have looked at, you know, some from this season. It takes a while to get them, only in the middle of May. I really need baseballs. I'll probably do the shout out again. But balls that we've been seeing in games and in BP so far are by and large leftover baseballs from 2021. That's not unexpected because, you know, they only went through maybe half of the baseballs that they had made for 2021 during that season because they were using up leftovers from 2020 because of the COVID shortened season. So we may be in, end up paying this forward indefinitely where, you know, we're, we make balls for one season and then we sort of hang around and use the rest of them up during the next what makes that interesting is everybody in the game, everyone has talked about how different the baseball is. The thing is, it's not a different baseball. The balls we are seeing aren't literally the same kind as the balls that we saw in 2021. They are exactly the same baseballs. They are 2021 baseballs showing up in 2022 games. So far, it looks like the dead ball thing that, you know, people have talked about, you know, they have basically been dead balls, 2021 dead balls. But last season, you know, from the outside, players couldn't tell the difference. Players didn't realize there were two different baseballs being used, you know, that were designed and have confirmed by MLB that they were designed to both be different. You know, they didn't realize those were being used in games together all season long because on the outside, they looked and felt the same. So something about what's happening this season is different. You know, you did not hear Chris Bassett 
talk about how bad the balls felt. And frankly, you know, was he Mets last year or A's last year? A's. He was A's. Okay, so he might not have run into it. But balls with humidor parks, you know, the balls are being described as bad, even though they had humidors last year. There is something different about what's being done to exactly the same baseballs. And I have ideas. I suspect it goes back to the humidor. But in general, this is just a very ugly sort of situation because I'm not really sure. I think, like I said, it feels a bit like an unforced error because the balls, you know, they are the dead kind, which have been a problem all along, I think. But with the balls, dead balls plus the humidors, I think are compounding what already was a problem into something worse. And I think I think player observation is going to have some correlation with the stats because you see the stats and it's sometimes hard not to have a preconceived notion that way. Like if a guy has bad luck, say he has a 400 batting average on balls in play, obviously he's not pitching well at that point, but everyone looks bad at a 400 BABIP when they're a picture, no matter how well they're pitching, just because you know that they have that 400 BABIP and you know the results of that. At last check, the OPS around the league was down over 40 points from last year. And obviously it's not a perfect, we're a little apples and hand grenades because that has, well, I can't say apples and oranges because if you go to the supermarket, apple juice and orange juice is like right next to each other. You literally are always comparing that. But but I digress. But a good digression. Yeah, a good digression. I, I, I hope I hope the listeners enjoy that. But to get myself slowly back on topic April can't account for a 40 plus point difference in OPS because, yeah, April's always going to be the, the lowest month OPS wise. May has not picked up all that much and something's different. You look at the BABIP around the league. When you go back to the 2014-2017 era, you had a 300 BABIP and that kind of fell down to the 290s in recent years, 292, 292 the last couple of years and down to 283 this year. So... Even if a player can't really feel that the ball is different, they know the ball is different. And that ball kind of leads to that that suggestion that it feels different. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm not quite so willing to discount, you know, if players are aren't sure if the ball is different. And we have heard that before, you know, where there might be a level of suggestion where they've heard from other people that the ball might be different such that, you know, it becomes sort of a, a self-fulfilling, it's a reinforced idea as opposed, like they're expecting to find it different. The kinds of things we're hearing from players, for starters, pitchers, if you've ever talked to pitchers about problems with the baseball, you know, particularly, you know, before this year, 2019 is the only one I think that comes close. Pitchers hate to blame the ball for anything. Frankly, they hate to blame anything for anything because if they're having problems because it's an excuse. And them being perceived as making excuses for poor performance is just not something they are willing to do. Stuff has to get really, really bad for a pitcher to come out and say, there's a problem with the balls. I mean, one thing like with Chris Bassett's observations, people don't, they've sort of glossed over the fact that he came out and he said that after he pitched a really great game, it wasn't an excuse for him pitching a poor game. Yeah, he was excusing the Cardinals, right? Yeah. I mean, a pitcher excusing the other team is in itself insane. You know, when Alec Manoa came out and he's made his comments, I had one friend point out who was surprised to hear it. And what he pointed out is he said, I can't believe he said that he's pre-arb. He's right. 
guys at that level rarely come out and say something like that that's controversial or that could be problematic because they don't have that much control over their contracts in future. Hitters are just as annoyed and frankly, over the same kinds of things. I would never have thought it possible that MLB could come up with a baseball that everybody hated. Pitchers hate it. Batters hate it. Apparently, throwing errors are up. Even fielders are having a problem with the baseball. I thought 2019 was like the worst baseball they could have come up with. Somehow they've done something worse. Baseball's good at that. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do either of you guys watch Kitchen, have ever seen Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay? I've seen it enough to know what it is, but yeah. it's, it's, He's wondering where it's, I'm going. Well, it's, it's more that that's the kind of TV that I choose to avoid because the whole point seems to be stress and watching other people in distress. And I don't think that's fun. Yeah. I like my cooking shows to be aspirational. Like, yeah. like the Top Chef. But but one of the things that happens in these shows, because uh, you're talking about leftover baseballs that they have to keep carrying over for the next year. One of the things that a lot of these bad restaurants do is they keep leftovers instead of serving fresh food. And when I think about baseball holding back baseballs from the previous year, even though that they, they want changes, I, I, I think of Gordon Ramsay yelling at someone who's serving lasagna that was cooked yesterday and warming it up in the microwave and charging $15 for it. And that's kind of what I feel like MLB does in a lot of things. I'm not sure. I mean, first of all, they've only started doing this because of the COVID shortened 2020 season. Before that, and I, I've looked at balls going back, you know, to like early 90s, late 80s. Mm-hmm. I have yet to find evidence that baseballs were like actively being carried over. It's it's a little harder once you get further back because you can it's it can be hard to pin down exactly when the balls were used. But certainly going back to, you know, at least through the Bud Selig era, I was able to track that down. And they just don't, you know, carrying baseballs over it didn't even make sense because they would use the baseballs up for the most part. That's kind of what confuses me. Like, to mm-hmm. paraphrase the rest of development, what's the most a baseball could cost, Meredith? $10? $12, yeah. <laughs> now that makes me think, have you ever dissected a 1987 baseball? I didn't know you had gone that far back. I have not yet because the problem is that that I don't have I don't have a ball that I know for sure is 1987. I do have ones that have NL and AL president stamps that are in that window, but I have not actually gotten around to checking to see if what year they're from. The good news is that I should be able, the batch codes did change a bit before then, but I do think I can follow them. So the, the ones that I see now started in, I want to say 94, that's like literally zero. There is a zero. It's kind of cool or a one. But before that, I, I haven't had a chance to look, but yes, I really want to look not just at 87, but 86 and 88 for comparison. Regardless though, the COVID season was really the first time where they would have had, because don't forget, it wasn't just that they had like half of production, more than half probably, left over for major league balls. They didn't use minor league at all, which meant that trip they make AAA balls at the same factory, but they used up all of these 2020 balls in the International League and the PCL. They did run out of those balls, you know, that had those stamps by sometime in August, but then they just started sending them balls with major league stamps because it's the same ball. This season, it doesn't look like they've even bothered to put stamps on them for the AAA leagues, which might just have to do with the fact that they're trying to run through leftovers. And so if that's the case, then, you know, the leftover balls are stamped as MLB and it makes it less confusing. 
it's certainly quite interesting that when you look at the minor leagues this year, run scoring is a lot more normal uh, than it is in, in, in the majors. Uh, the Pacific Coast League, I mean, they're scoring nearly six runs a game there. And that's like both teams here. No humidors. No, some PCL teams do, but in general, you're right. It's it's not. And, and even, even in those situations, most of the PCL is at altitude. So if P- the PCL teams that do have them very likely are teams that are, I know, I know there are a handful, but there are probably teams that it would be at altitude. So it'd be much more comparable to the Rockies, for instance. Yeah. What blows my mind is that the very fact that we know that the balls, it does seem to be mostly dead balls and leftovers, but it does seem weird. I mean, first of all, two things. One, even though we have exactly the same baseballs and we have, you know, a third of parks had humidors last year. Every single park seems to be having baseballs that are bad, you know, and I've gotten some of these, these game balls, you know, they do feel squishy. I feel like I can shift the covers around with my fingers and I am not somebody where I should have that level of strength in my fingers. I'm not a pitcher. There's, there's clearly, you know, the kind of problems that are being described about the, the seams being higher dense, which I think are flat spotting. These are things that I would associate particularly with that dead ball and with it expanding in the humidor, the way that the dead ball would expand. I mean, both balls would have some level of this, but the dead ball would have it in a more dramatic way, which is that outside the humidor, the ball shrinks down because the wool, that the yarn that makes up the ball, it does respond to humidity. And so it's actually going to flatten out. Whole ball will shrink down when it's drier. Once you put it in the humidor, again, that wool yarn response and the ball does re-expand to the kind of levels that fit the, um, you know, essentially the tolerances within the official rules. The problem is that we think of the inside as like these concentric layers, you know, so it's like a, a shell, uh, as it were, you've got a layer yeah, of- Yeah, like a gobstopper um, that you cut through. Yeah, gobstopper. That's a good one. Let's think of it as a gobstopper. So expanding, the problem is it's not necessarily going to expand in a way that keeps your gobstopper pristine because the covers are what keep the shape of the ball in place. So if you look at a baseball, you know, you've got the leather covers and then there are two of them. So the reason the seams are there is to close the gap between the leather covers. What that means is that the covers themselves, you know, the, the saddles, the, the, the tongues, they're saddle tongue. These are the different words that get used, but basically the part where they're all leather is going to press in harder than the gaps between the covers. And because it's pressing in that, well, when it expands, it's not going to expand in a sphere. It's going to expand more into the places that are pushing back less, which just happened to be the seams. So when I heard about players describing higher seams, I said, well, duh, of course. I even did some tests last, I don't know if Dan and I talked about this last year. I literally built a couple DIY humidors and found some of this stuff last year, not, not in big enough numbers to sort of get more than an impression of what could happen. But I found that, you know, taking a ball and put, you know, out of a humidor, letting it dry a bit, putting it back in, you ended up with higher seams. I also, it looked like I was going to end up with flat spots because when that ball expands in the humidor, it's sitting on a shelf. It's not like it's sitting in an egg crate. So the side that it's sitting on in the shelf for two weeks, it could actually be leading to it being flat on that side. So you've got players who are actually throwing out balls because they have dents in them. That's the description. Again. Something else that doesn't surprise me. Well, I was wondering what flat spotting meant, but that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Like something expands and it's sitting on a shelf. Yep. Yep. And and just all of this kind of stuff, like over and over, 
the the comments that I'm hearing from from players really seem to fit what you know what I would have expected to see with humidors. Now, what I think has been nuts is that what I was doing was not it was just with sort of the standard humidor, the way that it had been done before. I did use slightly different numbers. Uh, a slightly lower humidity than what is now being announced as the normal. And it could be that it is different than, I used 50 to 55% humidity. Apparently they're now using 57%, which I don't know if that's different than was sort of the stated number in previous years, or if I just had the wrong number. But however the humidors are being used, it's affecting the balls very differently. You shouldn't have players at City Field or players on the Red Sox, you know, Fenway, where this year they're concerned about bad balls with the humidor when they had humidors last year. You know, something's different this year, but it's not the baseballs. The baseballs are exactly the same baseballs. It's got to be something else. It's quite distressing how little interest baseball seems to have about all this because you you talk to players and, and team front offices. I do. I'm pretty sure Ben does as well. You're not going to get anyone to go on the record, you know, bashing MLB, just, you know, background. But mm -hmm. everyone seems to be very frustrated. And I'm not sure what benefit baseball gets from being so lax. Is it's, I know you never want to attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity, but it's just very frustrating as an observer of baseball. It just feels like from a fan standpoint, and I am a fan of baseball, that they just don't care about their equipment. And that just seems really, really odd for a sport that makes, what, $11 billion a year now. I feel like there's two, there's two parts to this. As far as like the use of the humidors, it does seem very much like John Shea had an article come out in the San Francisco Chronicle this past weekend. And I was amazed to see how much focus is put on not just having those balls in the humidor for two weeks, but making sure they spend almost no time out of the humidor until they're physically put into the umpire's hand, or at least in some kind of control. So like, you know, they're in the humidor, they're taken out to get rubbed up, you know, with, with mud for the game. They're not allowed to be out for more than two hours, put back into the humidor, until a half hour before game time, they're then put in a sealed bag. I think it's just zipped, by the way. I don't think it's like Ziploc, but it's a sealed bag. It's even got like a sticker on it to make sure nobody breaks into it, which I mean, I'm just thinking like, wow, this is an awful lot of concern. Where do they, what do they think is going to happen to the baseballs? But they've, whatever. Uh, they've followed too much football, I guess. Something like that. Yeah, they're afraid of deflate gate like you can do deflate gate. I don't know. <laughs> How do you deflate a baseball? Well, Joe West was in charge. You never know what's going to happen. Right. But the point being that I'm not sure how much time, even before the pitcher gets the ball, I'd assume they spent some time in the open air once they at least got into the dugout. They're being kept in a sealed bag in the dugout until the ball boy takes them and hands them to the umpires. And I'm not sure how that's working, but that's just, I feel like there's, it's almost like because the humidor is a good thing, it has to be all humidor all the time in a way that I'm not sure, how would I put this? It does look, for instance, like the, the situations where, you know, the seams are getting higher or where you're getting some kind of, you know, deformation, frankly. It seems to be related to the balls drying out and then, you know, being rehumidified, as it were. I don't know how often that door opens and closes or how stuff is done, but I have to wonder if this, like, if just leaving the balls out, say, 
for several hours instead of putting them back in for a little bit until a half hour before the game. And then like basically almost letting them see the light of day, but not quite and always closing the door. The analogy that came to mind was kind of like if you say freeze a piece of meat before you cook it, the one thing that you're never, ever supposed to do is refreeze it after you've thawed it. I have to wonder if this is working out as like refreezing the meat over and over and over again, because all somebody knows is you're supposed to keep it in the freezer and therefore more than two hours out of the freezer is bad. But if it's long enough, then you probably don't want to put it back in at all. So it's it's not a fabulous analogy, but I do have to wonder if that, you know, making sure it goes back in might not in itself be a problem. Do you think it would be practical to just keep the ball humidified from the factory to the stadium? Because it seems like the, the the fact that it starts dry and then gets filled with a bunch of water <laughs> is maybe not great. I do think it's not practical, but not because, I mean, first of all, yeah, the, the logistics of, you know, You'd have to have some pretty big humidors and you'd have to have trucks that had hum- that were that humidified like and you'd issue, have to figure yeah. out how to, you know, could the time between transport. But even the humidors themselves are only about like 10 by 10 by 8, or at least that's the way what, I think the Giants one, that was the size. It's, I think, a large walk-in closet. Yeah. They only store 200 boxes at a time, which is not a lot. And I mean, come to think of it, that's... 200 boxes is how many baseballs? Yeah, 200 boxes times 12 is 2,400 baseballs. I probably got 2,400 baseballs sitting around my apartment right now. Wow, that's a lot of baseballs. Which it says a lot about me, but also, you know, that there's... It's... How many do you plan on dissecting? That sounds like it's, you're going to be very No, busy. there's there's a historical study in there. Like there's a, you know, I'm interested in 1990s balls. There's some really cool stuff that I will eventually get to when there's no longer a problem with the current season which means sometime in my old age, I will be able to get to those is what it's starting to feel like. How do you manage baseballs and cats? Well, right now they're asleep. I didn't even have to drug them. <laughs> you drug your baseballs? This season, I think they've just gotten sick of it. There's just, there's been too much going on. But yeah, the, the other thing though, and this is, this is what it's sort of, I feel like it might segue into, you know, for instance, Kevin, Kevin Long's comments, or even just what we've seen in the last few days, this by the way, being Wednesday, is MLB, when I talk about them having leftover balls from 2021, they made those same two kinds of baseballs for the 2021 season as well. You know, and so we saw leftover 2020s, both kinds, in the first half, but we didn't really start to see actual 2021 baseballs, like made for the 2021 season until after the All-Star break. And even then, you know, you what, half of inventory, there was just not a lot of, um, how would I put this? If you have half of inventory, it's going to be, you know, half a million baseballs, probably more, frankly, because presumably they made AAA balls as well. But almost that entire season was leftover 2020s. There are a lot of leftover 2021s, as far as I can tell. They made two kinds of baseballs. They made the dead ball and the live ball for 2021. So far, almost everything I'm seeing are leftover 2021 dead baseballs. Those live baseballs have to be somewhere. And I realize, you know, you're using your your Gordon Ramsay analogy, but we're not talking about a few baseballs. We're talking about like a couple hundred thousand baseballs that are sitting on That's shelves. a lot of baseballs. Right. And when I say a couple hundred thousand, like, like that's a, you know, I don't know. I, I think the number might be conservative. I'm not sure. And that's just of the live ball, I should say. Out of 1.2 million or, you know, 1.8 million, it would then be a higher number because 1.8 is for AAA as well, if you include that. But 
that's too many baseballs for them to not use them at all ever again. And so that being the case, you know, it's one thing to have this dead ball get really wonky because of the humidors, but I'm waiting to see what happens with those leftover live balls, because frankly, they're really not showing up, you know? Watch them just appear at the all-star break and then there'll be more conspiracy theories from players. Well, what I, what I'm trying to find out actually, and, and this is, you know, sort of in addition to yes, please send me baseballs. It feels important to me now to be able to not just get balls from specific parks, but to literally get balls from specific parks from specific times. You know, the, the whole idea of like the nationally televised games, having more home runs, that seems oddly specific. But on the other hand, you know, it would be great if I was getting game balls from those games where suddenly offense was going up or series where suddenly offense was going up. And it could just be a fluke. But, you know, I want to see if those live baseballs are showing up. They got to be somewhere. That's perhaps the most confusing part of, um, I guess, the investigation that you and Bradford published last year is why were they making two balls? That is a good question. And, And I feel like that's one that... Could you use incompetence as a dodge? I have to wonder. I do all the time. I don't think they meant the humidors to be this bad, but here's the thing. (laughs) Had we not had a COVID-shortened season, they made two kinds of baseballs for 2020. Fully a third of production, you know, for the entire year, it's 12, 12 months of production, fully a third of production was those new dead baseballs. What they told Stephanie Epstein with Sports Illustrated was, somehow that these were a test batch or a test run that they were holding back. It's easy to say that when you've had a season that was only two months long. If they'd had a full season, they couldn't have not used two kinds of baseballs. They didn't have enough. So they made two and and they're different. You know, there's there's no people will talk about, you know, somehow it's it's a manufacturing inconsistency. Somehow they were ultimately working towards one baseball, therefore they had to use it up ultimately working towards one let's use two but for 2021 they made both kinds of baseballs again and if anything you know it's it's at least a third it might be as much as like half of them and so whatever the goal for mlb is it does not appear to be a making a single baseball because those live balls and those dead balls if you separate them out they're incredibly consistent with each other all the dead balls are made exactly the same way as all the dead balls. They're easy for me to tell the difference. All the live balls are the same as all the live balls. There is no overlap. They're two different baseballs. They were manufactured in these big chunks, like months at a time, where you'd only make the dead ball. Hard switch, only make the live ball. The whole idea that MLB somehow wants to get to only one baseball just does not bear out the facts. The data completely contradict that. So we have to like get away from the idea that somehow MLB's goal is one baseball, because I have yet to see evidence of that since 2020. And from our discussions, baseball has not been very cooperative about providing any assistance to outsiders who are criticizing them. But the bottom line here, that doomsday laser I talked about earlier, you, you didn't threaten the UN, you threatened MLB. Threaten MLB with a doomsday okay, laser. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll do the you dirty did. work. I'll you do the did. dirty work. I, I'm doing the dirty work. Yeah. Okay, so we did some dirty work when some, some decisions were made, and you've been appointed the benevolent philosopher-scientist despot of Major League Equipment. So what are the first steps you would take now with Baseball's Baseballs if you were in charge of this? How would you go about fixing whatever is wrong or getting just 
to a better place of transparency? Just what would you do, I think, is is my question. Wow. Okay. Well, well, for starters, I would remove MLB from sole oversight because right now there is no transparency, even though they only own about a quarter of the company. The rest of the company is owned by the Seidlers who own the Padres. So MLB runs the whole company. So yeah, so basically handing off oversight to somebody who isn't getting paid directly by, frankly, either MLB or the Players Association or somebody with an interest in the game, put the money from both sources into an escrow account such that, and, and set it up so there is absolutely no, there's no expectation basically of a quid pro quo. I would absolutely open up, you know, their books. I want to, I want to, I want to know why two baseballs have been being made. Frankly, that is my biggest question. Like, I would love to know the reason for that because I feel like until we understand the reason, I'm not sure how easy it will be to make it go away. You know, it is concerning and it doesn't seem to have to do with the nature of the ball itself. In addition to that, I would I would bring in people who are a lot. Well, first of all, players and coaches and people who like literally use the baseball and not just have them have them handle baseballs, have them, you know, not just do a, a random tour of the factory, but like actually have, you know, interviews back and forth, uh, suggestions. I would love suggestions and feedback from people who use the baseballs. I would like to bring in people who have expertise in the kinds of things that relate to the physical properties of the balls. You know, there's my stuff, but, you know, somebody who is, who knows, say, how heavy manufacturing works in general and, and how supply works, how easy is it to change some things versus others? How efficient is the process? You know, there's been this focus on somehow making, you know, improving consistency. Commissioner Manfred has said over and over about how the goal is to improve consistency, which sort of ignores the fact that they are making two reasonably consistent baseballs, I mean, self-consistent, that are physically intended to behave differently, so define consistency. Yeah, each one of them is perfectly consistent. They're <laughs> just totally different. But there really has been a focus in a couple places of, you know, think of it as like decreasing the error bars or narrowing the tolerances for manufacturing. I would like somebody to go in and figure out if the expectations are reasonable. Can we actually make the size more constrained than nine and nine and a quarter inches? Can we actually, you know, somehow, you know, make seams flatter in a way that's meaningful? Can, you know, there, there are, there are all of these things that, or, or, you know, or drag, making drag more consistent. I'm not actually sure that stuff's possible. And I don't want to pretend it is until we know how small can we really make those uncertainties? Because if we can't with the current manufacturing, well, then either we need to throw out those expectations or we need to improve the manufacturing. And I should point out that something like the Olympic ball is manufactured differently and frankly much better and does appear to be much more consistent. So it's not like Rawlings manufacturing is the only way to do it. Let's see, I would absolutely bring in a level of testing, ongoing testing that, that is transparent within you know, production itself. There's been statements in 2019, MLB referred to internal drag testing. Only time we ever heard about internal drag testing was in one article by Joel Sherman at the very beginning of April, 2019. Never heard about it again, except that they didn't use it at all when designing the dead ball. 
you know, that's not the only one. But but the point being, there there are a lot of things that need to be done, I think, in a very material way. And we need to treat this not as an esoteric problem. And people who handle the balls, people who know about the physical properties and what goes into it. Oh, and any tests that we do really does need to be controlled. And ultimately, like, you know, you got to give it a season or two. Sorry, you can't like decide to introduce a humidor when we don't even know for sure Let's say they were using the dead ball. We still don't know what the dead, the drag on the dead, dead ball would have been even without humidors because nobody's ever tested it on its own. So like all that stuff needs to be fixed. Is that despotic enough? I, I, I wanted some more, you know, jailings, but that works too. I, I would lean kind of technocratic <laughs> on that one. Sorry, I, I'm a scientist. <laughs> I apologize. You Generally, someone like me has henchmen so that she can keep her hands clean. Um, yeah, I'm a good henchman. Th- think of it this way. Professor Moriarty was an astrophysicist and a mathematician. Hard to argue with that. He didn't have a good henchman, though. Actually, he had an extremely oh. good henchman. Oh, he uh, did. Colonel okay. Moran was an excellent henchman. Okay, I, I'm very rusty on my Sherlock Holmes. Yes, you are. He never got his hands dirty, you know? He was so far removed. But that's the thing. Yeah, he never got his hands dirty, but he got an awful lot done. I like that comparison a lot. Yeah. I also, do you think that they actually have the manufacturing capability right now? Because it, it sounds like the two balls are clearly delineated and pretty self-consistent. And that didn't used to be the case, as I understand it. Define, when you say the manufacturing capability, what, the manufacturing capability for what? To repeatably make a baseball to more exact specifications than nine to nine and a quarter. I don't know, actually. That's the thing. I don't know if that's possible. What I do know is possible is that they can stop making two separate kinds of baseballs. Right. (laughs) That's definitely possible. And that's why I want to, I would like an explanation for that. And I'm not sure that's going to be one where I will need a henchman because I can't imagine that a a why is not something that in that case, the scientists can find out. That's that's probably going to require, you know, finding out, you know, about communications, emails, I mean, subpoenas. If it goes to that point, like, how do you get people to to disclose that information? Dan, you ever subpoenaed anybody? No, uh, I'm the henchman. Remember, you need the lawyer. I don't know if I'm a lawyer henchman. We have we have a lot of lawyers. Well, I mean, Moriarty had all these kinds of people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to start finding henchmen. But I think that when you talk about baseballs, I think we can get more henchmen here. We're just about out of time for this segment. I want to thank Dr. Wills for joining us again. If you want to be one of her henchmen for a good cause and possibly annoying Rob Manfred, also a good cause, let her know on Twitter because she needs baseballs to dissect. Not just game balls, batting practice baseballs too. The wider the variety of game event, location, date, the better we can get to the, well, she can get to the bottom of this problem. I'm just here talking and rambling. Dr. Will's handle on Twitter is BBL Astrophysics. That's BBL underscore Astrophysics without the I. Or you can search Google because that's what it's there for. For Ben Clemens and Fangraphs Audio, I'm Dan Zaborski. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Julia Morales and Dr. Meredith Wills for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. After you've headed over and checked out the Fangraphs shop, consider moseying over and signing up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on all the cool research we are doing over at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. Thank you for listening, be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.